so encouraged by his heart and his approach, and I was like, okay, great, like, this is going to be appropriate for our service. Here's what I didn't do, I didn't tell you guys that first. And so a few of you parents were wondering, like, should my child still be here for this? Is he going to say something that is important but not appropriate? And I just want to make sure that you are at ease when we, when we talk about things like that. Um, I was thinking of you and your children, but I didn't let you know I was. And so I apologize for that. And I want to let you know this morning that the content of the passage that we'll be reading is similarly sensitive material. In fact, there's a section of the passage that I will not read this morning. Um, often, as we preach from narrative, um, you, and as you've experienced, I, I ask you guys to stand up, and I'll read like two whole chapters of Scripture, because we're, we're here at church, and it's God's Word. I, lo- I love to read it, and I love to, to really bring out the narrative and try to put ourselves in people's shoes. I can't do that this morning with this passage. It'll be due to the sensitive nature of it. And so I want to let you know what, what, I, what I am going to talk about and what I'm not going to talk about so that you are not on edge wondering if I'm going to, this is going to take a more graphic turn than it needs to. Um, so this, this passage this morning is about David's children. It involves an incident of violence against a woman. Um, the, pa- the section that describes that is, is tr- deeply troubling and heavy. And that's this part that I'm not going to read. The section that I will read does make clear what happened. There will be no ambiguity. Um, But again, because our our children are present and because of the sensitive nature of it, I do not want to overindulge or carelessly bring up a subject that I am not fully equipped to deal with. My focus this morning is on David and his son Absalom, the failures that they make because of pride. Again, last week we talked about how God, as we've said this morning, He exalts the humble, but he opposes the proud. And this morning we see God opposing David. And God, when God opposes you, it is truly horrifying. And so, I want to let you know, we've talked about these kinds of things before. I'm not going to force you to have a conversation with your child that you're not prepared to have. I'm not going to read a passage that you think may not be appropriate for them, but I do want to encourage you as parents, please, these things are in the Bible because these things are in our world. As we sang this morning, do you feel the world is broken? We, We do feel that, and we know it, and we have to love and protect our children by being safe and reliable sources of information for them. So if you want to talk to your children about how to, prote- how, how to protect themselves, how to understand the tragic world that we live in. The book that we've recommended multiple times, and the one that I have read multiple times with my daughter Lizzie, who's three and a half years old, is called God Made All of Me. There's a copy upstairs in our dig library. Um, this book uh, is called, yeah, God Made a, a Book to Help Children Protect Their Bodies. And it is about, it's a simple picture book. What did God made? God made all things. God made your hair, he made your eyes and your mouth, he made all of your body parts, and he made them good. And so the book is simple, it's full of great illustrations. Lizzie loves reading this book because there is no, there's no sensitive or provocative content, it is for a child, and it is a wonderful way to just encourage them and to teach them about God's creation, his love. But it also equips them with an understanding 
of their bodies, who those bodies belong to, um, and what to say if someone tries to do something that they are not comfortable with. So you can see this book, the pages are, are ripped in places um, because we really have read it together. And so I want to give you that as a, as a tool um, because this is a challenging subject and it's a tool you can use early on. Another one I'd recommend if your children are older, uh, there's a series, and we've recommended this as well, it's called God's Design for Sex. These are the four books in that series. Um, Again, none of these things are going to be perfect. You might find things in them that you are like, I don't know about that, but you need a tool, right? You need help to do this. None of us are equipped to do this on our own. So we need each other, and we, we need these tools. These are the ones that I would recommend for you to use. I encourage you strongly to do this. Jesus said, that he who can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. We want our children to trust us with little things, with simple things. This is, this, this is your body. This is how it works. God made it. So that, God forbid, ever, if they need to tell us about something that is more significant or worse, they know that we can be trusted with little, and they will choose to trust us with much. Because if they cannot trust us, or children cannot trust us, what will they do? I want to pray for us this morning. Um, so again, I, I'm, I'm going to avoid some of the things in this passage. I do not do so from a place of wanting to gloss over or undermine the significance of what happened. We're going to talk about Tamar, God's heart for the vulnerable, for the broken. And, and as we've heard again and again, I think we, we are going to see how God exalts the humble and opposes the proud. And so, Let's, let's pray together. Um, I'll talk, stop telling you what I'm going to say and actually say it. <laughs> God, I, I'm so grateful that I have been given the privilege to preach your word and that this congregation has, has trusted me with that. Um, thank you so much, God, for the men and women who were eager and, and willing to discuss this with me as I, as I prepared uh, and prayed and planned. Uh, Lord, I ask that I would be uh, true to the things that I committed to um, and that I would take the advice they gave me to heart. Lord, all the more, I pray that my insecurities, my desires um, would, would, would not distract from what you have to say to us in your word. That, that you, Lord, would accomplish something in our hearts and our minds, convicting us, changing us, comforting us, Lord, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus, that your, the word that you send out from your mouth this morning would not return to you empty, Lord, that it would accomplish your purposes. And so, Lord, I ask this in the name of Jesus. Be with us this morning as we think, pray, and hear from your word. Amen. You're familiar, probably, with David's sin with Bathsheba. That's not the story that we're talking about this morning but it does set the background for it. I wrote a devotional uh, a few months ago about, about that incident and about how David responds to it, his prayer of repentance. And I, I said that public, public apologies rarely satisfy, and that is too troublingly true. How many times has an individual in a position of power, whether it be in government or entertainment or even in the church, 
has done something inappropriate and wrong and failed to take proper responsibility for it, issued an apology that does not, does not rise to the occasion. David does confess. He is broken over his sin, and that the, the psalm that I wrote that devotional about is wonderful and is an example for us of how to be brokenhearted and repentant before God. David's repentance is received and accepted by God, but that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. It is not all okay, all is forgiven, and we can forget and move on that David killed a man, that he took someone else's wife, that he did things that were truly wrong. No, what is often forgotten when we remember or retell that story is that when the prophet Nathan confronts David, he doesn't just confront him and draw his sin out and force him to confess it. He also prophesies against him a word from God himself. So we're going to read that, and then we'll read um, our passage for this morning. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before you in the eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This comes to fruition in 2 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 18. Again, you you have a Bible with you. You're welcome to read what, what comes before this. Second Samuel, chapter 13, starting in verse 18. The she is Tamar. Now Tamar, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for, th- for such were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, him being her brother Amnon. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years... Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom lived 
invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep's ears. Please let the king and his servants go be with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not go at all. Let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon and as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule, and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his garments, and lay on the earth. And all his servants were standing, tore their robes, tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons. For Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. This is God's word. So as we continue to talk about this, I will not use I will not use any language or or refer to anything that hasn't been included in that portion of the text. Um, We will at one point, I will at one point mention um, or refer to scandals um, or incidences of violence or indiscretion that have happened in our, in in the recent, in recent history. In in the event that I do, I will not be discussing the, the details of those. Again, we're focusing on the response to them and contrasting how David and Absalom both act in pride and are opposed by God. (sighs) David's life really took a tragic turn after after last week. Last week, I was just so excited to be here, and I am so grateful again this week to be with you and to share God's word and to worship together. I've been, it's, just, it's been a long year, a long summer. I, I, like so many of you, are exhausted emotionally, and church is such a blessing to me. So last week, I, I was so excited to preach to you. I, I, I even became emotional as I did, which is very rare for me if you're new here. I, that does not happen very much. Um, God, God does amazing things for us. He meets David and, and corrects him, and David is humble, and he receives that. He makes a covenant with him, a covenant that he fulfills 
in, ultimately in Jesus and then invites us into, it is a beautiful and awesome thing. David wanted to do something for God, but God did something incredibly more than he could ask or imagine for him. And so we can humble ourselves and also receive God's grace that way. And it's not long after that that the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah happens, and then it's not long after that that this horrible event happens. What happened to humble, righteous David? Where, where, is, where is the young man with, full of confidence and humility willing to, willing to risk his life against the Philistines to defeat their champion, Goliath? You know, looking around, none of you will act. Like, I'm just a kid. I'll, I'll go out and do it myself. How, how can you, none of you act? And, and yet here in this passage, David is very angry over the awful injustice that has happened, and yet the passage makes it very clear. It says, two full years later, Absalom, despite his anger, despite, there's no, this is not a he should, she should situation. There is no uncertainty as to what really happened. David knows exactly what has happened. He knows exactly how wrong it is. He knows what the law of Israel that God gave them tells him he must do as the king. But he does nothing. He does nothing. David has pride. The, the humility that he once had is absent here. Amnon is David's firstborn son. And in the ancient world, your firstborn was a big deal. All the more if you were the king. Amnon is going to be king when David dies. And what was God's covenant with David? What was his promise to David? I will make your house great. I will raise up your son to rule on your throne. I'll be like a father to him. He's going to do amazing things. Now David has, at this point, more wives than I could keep track of and more children than I could keep track of. I had to look it up in my encyclopedias and, you know, because they're mentioned throughout and I, I was honestly shocked at how many wives and children David has accumulated by this point in his life and by the end of his life. But David, being an ancient king, he's only got one thing in mind. Amnon's the guy. He's my firstborn son. God made his promise to me, and that's how it's going to be fulfilled. That's the only way this works. So David has pride. Pride, pride in himself and his dynasty his pride leads to inaction and further injustice. How can God still fulfill his promise? How can God do what he promised to do if Amnon, the object of his promise, is either exiled or executed, as the law would have me do? We, don't, we have to speculate a bit, and I won't go more than that, but the passage does highlight the time that has passed, the lack of action, and the fury of Absalom. David has pride. It leads to inaction and injustice. If we said last week that humility is being able to rejoice and take uh, gratitude in the accomplishments of others as if they were your own, pride, pride is when you can 
only and ever take pleasure in your own accomplishments. And David's pride is so great that he cannot imagine how the incredible, awesome God, the one that he gave credit for, to for everything he's ever received and accomplished, how God can still be faithful to him if he does what is right. And so he does nothing. He does nothing. His dynasty is too important. The object, the promise that God gave becomes more important than God himself. Absalom is also a picture of pride. Absalom's pride leads to contempt and rebellion. Absalom, there is, as he speaks to Tamar at the beginning of the passage we read, there, that, that line that he says to her is, is insensitive, but is all the more so when it's translated. It, it just seems, when you read it again in English, don't take this to heart. It just, you couldn't think of a worse thing to say. And that is partially a function of our inability to translate some Hebrew idioms in a way that makes sense in English. That is literally what he says. It doesn't carry quite the same connotation. But they are, the author and narrator is implying and telling us, and we'll see that this is not simply implied, but confirmed later, that yes, Absalom loves his sister Tamar, and yes, he is righteously indignant over what has happened to her and that nothing has been done about it. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Absalom is also a picture of pride because he wants to be king himself. I know this because after this incident, and I'm not going to be able to read the full story of Absalom to you this morning as it goes over a few chapters. But Absalom does kill Amnon, though he does so through a scheme and with some, sec with some, with some secrecy. And after he accomplishes that, he flees, and he and David are never reconciled. Years will pass. Absalom will have a daughter. He'll name his daughter Tamar. But Absalom will never return to peace. He will lead a rebellion. He will establish himself as a judge. He says to himself in 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It's hard not to root for Absalom a little bit. Absalom embodies so much of what we, of what we as a culture value, especially, especially in a man. He wants to protect his sister. He wants to avenge her. And he does invite her and take her into his home. He says that she lived a desolate woman. She is broken by this, but she is cared for in her brother's home.
But Absalom is not content to avenge her by killing Amnon. In fact, David seems pleased by that. David weeps over his son, but it's not Amnon he's weeping over at that point. No, it's, it's Absalom, because Absalom flees. Indeed, it says that when David found out that Amnon was dead, it says he was, he was comforted. David knows, David knows what is right. He knows what should have happened. This, you can speculate, and some commentators do, though speculation is foolish, we know what happens next. If Amnon had stopped there, would he and David have reconciled? Would Amnon actually have become king in, Amnon, in Amnon's place? We want a champion. We want people who are going to do what needs to be done and do what is right. Amnon does that. He steals the hearts of Israel. He does what is right when David would not. And as you read the story, you're going to sympathize with him. So many of us want to be him. So many of us imagine ourselves avenging a misdeed or an injustice. Whether it's putting yourself in a superhero movie or, you know, the Gladiator with Russell Crowe. I, I don't, I'm trying to think of a more recent movie. That movie is much older than I think it is. But that, we, we love that stuff. Action hero. Give me, a re- give me a reason to just kill somebody. It's hard to find a better reason than this. But righteous anger is still a dangerous thing. And Absalom is not not satisfied even with his status as a judge, even with stealing the people's hearts. He goes on, I'm not going to read this part again because this is, the content of it is sensitive in nature, but he, he does steal and take David's harem, a symbol of his power and position as a king, a symbol that God did not honor, did not want him to have, but Absalom takes it anyway. He fulfills the prophecy that Nathan made. I will raise up evil in your house. The evil is Absalom. The evil in that passage is Absalom. He does the thing, exactly the thing that was prophesied. As I, as I read this, I think of a phrase all, 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 it ma- all that it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. It's true. It's true. But Absalom's not a good man. And if we're going to be serious, according to, according to God's word, none of us are. God, speaking through the Apostle Paul in Romans, Romans chapter 12. I don't think I have a slide for this one, guys. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I can just imagine flip-flopping forever between all takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And being torn apart. There is a place. There is a place for force. There is a place for punishment. Again, the law was clear. What Amnon did was evil, and David should have applied it to him. And perhaps, even though Absalom does, did so in a conspiring and secretive way, perhaps that was truly just and what needed to be done. But it wasn't enough for, for Absalom. Because Absalom is not acting out of righteous anger. He's acting out of pride. Perhaps he, knew, he knows the prophecy. Perhaps he sees himself fulfilling it. But he fulfills a different one. Absalom is a champion for the people. He steals their hearts. He does what is right. He takes justice. He, he just, he acts. But he fails them. And ultimately, he dies as he rebels and leads a rebellion against David. When David learns of Absalom's death, In 2 Samuel 18, a servant comes to David. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And David we, we, we did not include the entire thing. David weeps. I'm going to read you the right thing here. I'm not going to skip this part. That's a typo for us. <clears throat> and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David's pride leads to inaction and injustice. He desires to protect his dynasty, his sons. He loses two of them instead. Absalom acts in pride. His righteous anger becomes contempt. He has contempt for his father. And we might be able to sympathize with that, but what he does with that contempt is tragic and wrong. And ultimately, he loses his life as well. And as father and son bite each other, as they fail each other, they fail God, they fail their kingdom, and they forget Tamar, 
They forget Tamar. David weeps over his son Absalom. He's very angry over what happens to Tamar, but he does nothing about it. Absalom does something about it. He lifts her out of the ash heap. She's put ashes on her head. He brings her into his home. It says that she was a desolate woman, but she lived in the house of her brother Absalom. I believe that at some point before he became contemptuous and rebellious, yes, Absalom does love his sister. He cares about what is right. He does name his daughter Tamar. But when Absalom is dead, and ex- before, what, is, what is to become of her? Who is going to care for her? David loses, Absalom loses sight of what truly mattered. And that's what I see in that passage from Romans. Weep with those who weep. That was not enough for Absalom. Paul says that it has to be enough for us. I know that some of you have served in the military or has, as police officers. Some of you may aspire to do that if you're young. Those are valid. They are legitimate. And in those roles, justice can be enacted, often with force. There is a place to respond strongly and decisively to evil. God has ordained and set the world in this way. But it's not the way that it was supposed to be. It is not the way it will be. And it's not the way that we should live. We must be Christians first. We must take these things seriously. And in taking them seriously, they must not be things or ideas or controversies. They have to be people. People like Tamar. She cannot be forgotten. We don't know what happens next in her life. This passage does not tell us. But we have to believe and to know that God does not forget her. Just as he met Hannah at the beginning of 1 Samuel, that's how God started this story. By meeting a woman in desperate and hopeless need and blessing her, lifting her, as she says in her prayer, lifting for her from the ash heap and exalting her to a place of honor. That is what God does for the vulnerable, for the broken, and for the needy. That is the kind of action that he calls us to. I have one last illustration before I, I conclude our sermon by looking at Gospel of John and interaction between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. When I was a, a kid, I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance, um, which is a great denomination. It's a, a close has some close ties to ours in the Evangelical Free Church. Um, and I went to Nyack College in New York, which is a Christian Missionary Alliance uh, school. And one of the, one of the uh, more prominent figures in in that denomination was a man named Ravi Zacharias. And you may be familiar with him because his books were, were very popular. He was a, a conference speaker. Um, he had a very, very successful ministry as an apologist, defending the faith, sharing the gospel. 
And I remember, I, I, I've never been you know, a devotee of his, and I don't necessarily have many of his books, but growing up, he was our champion, one of our, one of our champions. He's one of our guys. Christian Missionary Alliance, no one knows who we are. We're, we're, we got Ravi Zacharias. He's awesome. He, like, he's, he's brilliant. He's defending the faith. He's fighting the fight for us. And if he ever came to speak at the college or, or whatever, like, it was a big deal. It was like, awesome. Hey, we get to go see our guy, right? And, and that's how we thought of him, and, and that's how I did as well. I, again, I, I didn't necessarily be a WOT as his, but it was always, he was always there. Like, oh, if I need some, I bet Robbie's got a great book on that. I can recommend that. I can, I can commend that. Um, Robbie's passed away now. He died of cancer in the past, uh, in the past year and a half or so. Before he, died, before he died, there were some accusations made against him. Again, I'm not going to go into the details of those. Those accusations were um, dismissed and investigated, but we've come to find out later, not, not truly investigated. Ravi uh, ins- ins- uh, resisted any um, insight or investigation into his personal life or his ministry at that time. Um, he was confronted by some other prominent uh, pastors and, and authors, but he denied, he denied everything, and um, for the most part, he was, he was believed and assumed to be falsely accused. There was an, an out-of-court settlement, uh, non-disclosure agreements were signed. It's hard to say, again, I, I, I wasn't really aware of this when it was happening. Vaguely. Again, non-disclosure agreements, out-of-court settlements, it's hard to really keep track of that kind of thing. I'm not assuming the worst of the people who, le- who are of, of, of leaders in the church. After his death, he was much more thoroughly investigated and much more accusations were made, uh, many, many, many of which were confirmed. Uh, I'm, again, I will, I'm not going into the details of them, uh, but you can read about them in detail, if you would like to. Ravi Zacharias was Amnon. He used his power and authority to abuse women. And people were aware of it, and they didn't do anything about it. Maybe you've never heard of Ravi Zacharias. Again, I'm using him specifically because I've known of him and have, have appreciated, would have, re- would have eagerly recommended him to you not too many years ago. And again, because of that idea, he felt like our, our champion, our guy. We don't need champions. We don't need Ravi Zacharias or Absalom or David. That was the whole point of God's covenant with him last week. David, I don't need you to build me a house. I don't need you to be my ch- a champion for the people. David, I'm God. I'll build you a house. We can't hold Ravi accountable. Look at all the good he's doing for the gospel. How many people's faith would be challenged 
if we held him accountable, if we believed these accusations against him, we can't believe it. The cause is too important. Look at all the good he's done. Just like David, foolish, foolishly and pridefully not punishing his son to protect his dynasty, he loses two sons. How many people will question, doubt, or walk away from the church because of what Rabbi Zacharias did and because the community around him failed to hold him accountable? The ministry that he ran has chosen, first they chose to stop using his name and then they chose to simply disband. Um, It is a, a tragedy. And again, it was one that was made foolishly and pridefully. Our champion, our champion can't do any wrong, and he can't be held accountable. He's too important. Whenever we feel that way about anyone, for any cause, we have committed idolatry, and we are acting in foolishness and pride. God opposes the proud. Paul encourages us and says, if God is for us, who could be against us? God opposes the proud. If he opposes you, who could be for you? What a nightmare. We may think it's empty words when Paul says to leave it to the wrath of God. There's nothing empty about God's wrath. And this is a sober, terrifying warning to us. Why are passages like this in the Bible? Because this is what the world is like thousands of years ago and today. But God wants to do something about that. He doesn't need us to do that, but we are the people he has called. Just, yes, us, here and over, even us. Jesus treated things differently. We don't need Absalom, we don't need David. Uh, we We need Jesus, and we need to be like him and not like them. There was a woman named Mary Magdalene, She's often confused with another woman who cleaned Jesus' feet with her hair. Those are different women. Mary Magdalene was a close companion of Jesus and the disciples. She traveled with them. She, she had finances that she used to, to support the ministry. She was, she was in. And she was, she was in, she was with Jesus because she was, we know, an unmarried woman, which is why she is named after the town she lived in, in Mag, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. Um, and because Jesus had freed her from demonic possession. We, that, the account of that is never in the scriptures, but that is usually, always what it tells us when she was introduced. Mary Magdalene, who had been oppressed by demons, but delivered by Jesus. Mary is so devoted to Jesus. She is there when he's crucified. She's there when he's buried. She's there on Sunday morning to anoint his body, and to care for him. I want to read to you John's account of that, and we're going to start in verse 11. I'll, I'll summarize 1 to 10 for the sake of time. 
They found an empty tomb, and so we pick up the story with Mary. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned to him in, in Aramaic, said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I avoided reading um, the account of what happened to Tamar this, earlier this morning. I, I, again, I, I don't want to force anyone to put themselves into that story. But I want us to think about this one and to put ourselves in Mary's shoes. Saturday after the crucifixion must have been the longest day of anyone's life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Jesus was crucified and dead and buried. Just the agony of that day. So that day is finally over and it's Sunday morning and Mary's going to do something. Something to comfort herself. Something to honor her Lord, Jesus, whom she loved, who had done everything for her. Who had freed, us, freed, her, freed her from her desolate place of oppression. And when she arrives, he's not there. He's not there. The disciple, Peter was there as well. He ran. The disciple that Jesus loved, John, in these first ten, ten verses I didn't read, they, they get there as well. Everyone sees the empty tomb and no one knows what to do. John tells us that he believed, but really they did not yet understand the scripture. And so all of them are just confused and they're hurt more than, any, more than ever. I, I had a, an eye problem last week, as I shared with you, and I, I have cried a lot in the past couple weeks. It's really hard to see when, you're, when your eyes are full of tears. Mary's one of the only people ever in the Bible to see two angels and not lose her mind. She has no reaction to them. No reaction at all. She is at her lowest. Pain upon pain. She cannot even care for Jesus' body. She cannot even recognize Jesus himself when he stands before her. So what does Jesus do for her? He says her name. He says, Mary. He, reach, he lifts her up from the ash heap. 
and comforts her, she, she switches from deep despair to, to utter joy. And that's, that's not where it ends. He lifts her from the ash heap. He exalts her and gives her a place of honor. He says, go to my disciples and tell them. Tell them what has happened. Tell them I am alive. Jesus, he could have appeared and given this instruction to John or to Peter. They had been there too. But the first will be last, and the last will be first. And Mary, a desolate woman, in deep despair, is first in the kingdom of God. He comforts her, and he exalts her. She is the first to proclaim the resurrection to others. She is the first in the kingdom of God. In David's kingdom, Tamar may have been forgotten. And tragically, even in, in, in America, women like that, who have experienced that, may feel forgotten. It is not so. It is not so in the kingdom of God. And it must not be so with us. God has called us to be his hands and feet to love and care for the vulnerable, to not let that our, prides, our pride and our arguments distract us from the people who actually need our help. That's, Tamar becomes a pawn, a, an object for David and Absalom, an excuse for their actions. But to Jesus, Mary is a person, is a friend. He comforts her he exalts her. And so, that is what he will do for us. When we are humbled or humiliated, God, through Jesus, and, and Jesus will use his church to do this. He will meet us, lift us from our pain, wipe the ashes from our face, and exalt us to a place of honor. Give us work in his kingdom to do. To weep with those who weep. To rejoice with those who rejoice. To trust in God that he will oppose the proud and rejoice that he has given grace to the humble. If we are prideful this morning, may God humble us now. May God humble me now. <clears throat> and if, if we do approach him humbled or, or humiliated, we will receive his grace. Jesus himself was humiliated and died in our place. He rose again exalted. So that is what he has done for us, what he has called us to do for others. We must, we must beware of pride. We must not make others our champions. Trusting alone in Jesus, humbling ourselves day by day so that we can recognize and see 
the vulnerable and the needy. So we can take steps to protect them, to prevent the kinds of things that have happened, and to make them, to bring justice to them when they do. God will do this through us if only we are humble. If only we are humble. I'm going to pray for us now. God, I, I know that I am inadequate to fully capture what you have to say to us and to me in this, in this passage this morning. If I have done so poorly at any point, may that not be a distraction. God, I, I cannot avenge and I cannot comfort, but, but you can and you will. So Lord, I ask that you would use me, you would use us to comfort those who need comfort, to weep with those who weep. Lord, but all the more that you would richly bless us in our humility. That just as you made a covenant with David, you would keep true to your covenant with us. We know, we know that you will, Lord. We know that you will. Give us things to rejoice over and may, uh, may we rejoice over them together. God, only you can do this. We are humble before you, God, so we turn to you in worship. We have, I have nothing else to say. I love you, Lord. We love you. Amen.